Okay, yeah. Well, it's and it's been many years since I've I've sat down and read Plato's Republic, but I've I've yeah. read it um, several times at least, and read parts of it over and over again a bunch. And there's the the part where he's describing a tyrant with absolute power, and and whoever it is he's arguing against in in the dialogue basically is saying that like the greatest thing would be um, if you could be just a, a tyrant with absolute authority, that this would be wonderful. You'd have no limits to whatever you could do. And, you know, you could just get whatever you want and make people do whatever you want. And, and Plato is of course, through, through the character of Socrates, he's, he's making the argument, argument against this. And he's saying, Oh, that basically the, the tyrant is ultimately the most miserable human being because and I forget all of the points he makes, but at least part of it was because the tyrant has to always be extremely paranoid. The tyrant like almost can't sleep at night, right? Because he's making so many enemies. He has so many people who hate him, including probably people very close to him mm-hmm. that ultimately his existence is miserable. Now it's possible that, that maybe if someone's a psychopath or a sociopath, this doesn't affect them in quite the same way as it would most people, I don't know. But it is an interesting thing to think about because when you look at people like Stalin, for example, and like just how paranoid of a crazy person he was, like it's hard to, hard to think that Stalin was what any reasonable person would consider happy or satisfied or whatever, right? That... I don't know that this this life of absolute power has its its downsides, and one of them is like you can't really sleep at night, mm-hmm. even if you don't have a conscience to where you feel guilty about all the things you've done. Uh, you still have to just worry about you know getting stabbed in the back, right? Like a lot of those Roman emperors who were particularly uh, nutty, right? Very often they'd get assassinated by their own Praetorian guard. Right, and that's a that's a pretty typical archetype in literature yeah. and movies and things like that. The tyrant is always. You know they're savage maniacs, but like you said, they're completely paranoid, and they're they start to suspect everyone around them, and makes them act even more irrational. And yeah, yeah, they they never. When you look into kind of just how they live day to day and whatever, I never see much evidence that that tyrants and dictators and whatever that they're just like happy, you know, in a basic human sense that they're happy and that. To some degree, this is this is even true of, of elected presidents. Although I, I think it's probably the most pronounced in an absolute tyrant. But that you know, an average person who just—and this is sort of a Taoist idea too, right—that it's it's better. There's the old Taoist saying, "It's better to to uh, sit and look at the mountainside than it is to be the king of the whole world," or something like that, right? Uh, that a, that a person who who lives a much simpler, humble sort of existence actually might be happier and have more meaning and fulfillment than somebody who, you know, gets great power. That and and this probably is true of celebrities too, right? That a lot of these things, um, having lots of wealth and fame and power and all these, like these, don't seem to really make people happy usually. No. No, what was that that song? More money, more problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, plus the people who chase after those things to the exclusion of everything else, it clearly is just like they've got a coke addiction, right? I mean, yeah, it's very hollow. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're like, oh man, oh, if I could just become a congressman, you know, and then they become a congressman. And it's like, well, if I could just get to be the head of this one committee, you know, and then they get that. And they're like, well, if only I could be a senator, I could be happy with myself and satisfied. And it's like, it's just like you need the, the bigger fix all the time, mm-hmm. you know. So, so yeah, I, I think these people do pay a psychological toll on some level. And yeah. then... Unfortunately, they then try and, and self-medicate very often by doing more horrible things. True. That's true. Yeah, you see it all over Hollywood and, you know, with the different types of addictions and you definitely see it, you know, people chasing power. So seems like uh, whatever dragon you chase is going to take its toll on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for for being satisfied, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, content content yeah yeah and to to appreciate what you have right not that mm-hmm. not that one should cease trying to pursue goals and do things or whatever but there's no. an unhealthy version of that that lots of times the people who rise to great power or fame or whatever um it's not it's not a healthy balanced version of pursuing reasonable goals and <laughs> that kind no, of thing no no i think it's um just being thankful for what you what you have yeah and, for sure uh, and then when you have more then you're thankful for that and vice versa you know it seems to yeah. be otherwise you'll worry yourself to death yeah yeah and you'll you'll never get enough right i mean yeah you look at the way i don't know somebody like I can never wrap my head around, and I'm a, I'm a pro free market guy, but I could never wrap my head around when you hear about somebody like um, Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or whoever, like continuing to to work like crazy to to scratch another billion dollars together or whatever. Like I I just can't wrap my head around that. I I don't think I don't know. To me, there's there's something not quite right there. Um, do you think it, that someone like that? Do you think? At some point, it's not about the money anymore. That they're they're just sort of addicted to the game of of getting more yeah. more zeros uh, behind their name or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like the money is a way to keep score. Yeah, yeah, it could be. I, it's it's just so strange to me because, you know, if you gave me whatever the amount of dollars it would be for me to live, like let's say even a decent, maybe upper middle class at most lifestyle mm-hmm. for the rest of my life without having to work other than at things that I wanted to do for their own sake. Right. Right. I mean, I, I, I would never do, I would, I would never do, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd spend way more time going fishing. <laughs> I'd spend yeah. way more time uh, hiking in the woods. I'd, I'd spend way more time doing that. And, you know, I, I would still do some productive things. I'd still keep doing my podcast and I'd still keep doing other things, but, I don't know, as far as like busting my ass 70 hours a week, running s- some crazy high stress company or whatever. It's like, count me out of that. It, you know, I can, I can understand doing that for a while to get to a certain level, but yeah, I don't know. I give me a couple million dollars. I'm, I'm walking away from my day job tomorrow. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's almost like the juice, you're like the, like that, high operational tempo or you know that stress is their drug yeah 
And yeah. it seems like it attracts that kind of person anyway. I mean, I don't want to work a hundred hours a week. I've done that yeah. before and not for that kind of money either, but I like being able to go home at night and yeah. seeing, seeing, you know, seeing my wife and the dogs. Yeah. Yeah. I like being able to spend time with my wife and kids and, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I could have, I'm sure been making a lot more money the last, you know, 15 years or whatever, um, doing something else. But I was like, well, I could do a job where I've got, you know, a few months off in the summer and I've got a couple weeks off around Christmas and, mm-hmm. you know, the pay sucks, but it's steady. <laughs> Right. You know, and, and it means that I could, I could spend a lot more time with my kids. Like I, I look at some of my other, um, you know, relatives and things who, who make a ton more money than me, but they, they work crazy amount of hours and they, you know, all the sorts of stuff. And it's like, yeah. How happy are they? You know? Yeah. 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 They don't, they don't spend as much time with their kids. That's for sure. You know, I'm sure there's plenty of other areas of their life that they're shortchanging in order to have fancier shinier stuff than i have yeah it's all a trade-off yep um yeah and that to me my wealth is my family so yeah yeah it's much more important yeah that's true well um i think that was a really good (laughs) (laughs) warm-up that was a nice break from all the craziness that's going on in the world right now so yeah yeah, yeah. I, I've really been trying to, trying to, in my own mental space and interactions with people, like sort of counterbalance a lot of the, the craziness and negativity, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, I've, uh, f- the first week or so that this stuff really started to go crazy, I was, I was in a, not not so great mental space you know i was starting to get worried and stressed and anxious and mm-hmm. and you know i've i've always had tendencies towards anxiety and depression and those started to get tweaked a little bit by everything going crazy around me and and then i i sort of after about a week of being nuts i sort of turned it around for the most part and you know part of it was i realized like well the and i was talking about some of the stuff with uh, Brett Vinat for school sucks recently, just a few days ago, but that, you know, there's the idea of, of crisis and Leviathan, right? The idea like Rahm Emanuel said in 2009, you, that the government doesn't want to let a good crisis go to waste because it gives them an opportunity to basically grab more power in ways that they normally can't. And, and I said, well, what if I could have like my, my positive, personal version of crisis and leviathan which you know i don't know crisis and and um and and self-improvement and gratitude right that like yeah this is all kind of crazy and probably some bad stuff is going to happen but but as long as nothing too catastrophic happens directly to me or to my close family members or whatever there's also a lot of opportunity for me to come out of all this craziness better than i was in some ways you know um, including just more appreciative of when things are normal and mellow, you know? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is one of the, the positives I've gotten from living in a hurricane prone area, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, when the power's on and the internet works and the AC works and whatever, it's like, I, I appreciate these little, little miracles that we mostly take, take for granted, right? It's, it's one of the positives of occasionally being deprived of those things for a while. It's like, you know, you appreciate when it just works for a stretch. Yeah, a little bit of struggle builds character, you know. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, to the people that are going to have catastrophe from this, either because like they get completely economically destroyed or, you know, the people who are, who are going to get the illness and, and get it bad or whatever. Like, obviously I'm not, I'm not saying it's always possible to, to make lemonade out of lemons if it's bad enough. Right. But that most likely for most of us, it's not going to be that catastrophic. There are going to be some bad things, but um, I don't know. I'm just making a, a conscious effort. Right. To, well, you have to. Yeah. You know, the world's crazy enough on a good day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I just know me personally, like I've, I've, I've learned over the past, I don't know, five, eight years, whatever. I've, I've learned um, how to manage my tendency towards things like anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had to kind of like, you know, sort of sort of take a step back mentally i don't know a week or two ago whenever it was when i wasn't doing so well and go oh, okay i see i see where this is going for me um and this could this could go to very dark places um if i don't hit the brakes on it you know yeah i start i go down those rabbit holes too yeah next thing you know i'm i'm lugging in cases of ammo <laughs> yeah 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 well the nice part is i i still have so much ammo from like uh, 2008, 2009, I didn't have to buy too much this time. Yeah. I was lucky, um, when 2012, was it 2012? I don't know. The last, yeah, it was 2011, 2012, the last panic buying thing. I was actually working at a gun store in range when I was going back to school, mm. so going back to school at 32. And, uh, yeah. I got such a good discount. And then if you made X amount of sales or whatnot, you got store credit. So Plus, I was working full time and had the GI Bill. So nice. I made out pretty well. Yeah, <laughs> I haven't bought anything in eight years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've you know, I've, I've I've got enough of a stash. I can fight off the zombies for a little while anyway. I know. I love that um, that meme. It's Will Ferrell. <laughs> he said, "I wanted zombies, not a pandemic." I said it four <laughs> times. <laughs> yeah. Well, we might get the zombies, right? Uh, if there's... I am legend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've loved all those memes of like, you know, it's the I Am Legend movie poster and it says me going to the grocery store. Yeah. I saw somebody, it said, uh, it was him and the um, and the dog and it said me looking for weed in two weeks. Nice. <laughs> oh, man. Well, um, when, I re- when I originally co- reached out to you, um, I had just gotten, I was right in the middle of reading Lysander Spooner, um, No Treason. Mm-hmm. And going from conservative Republican to minarchist, and then reading Lysander, um, it's, it was it's kind of mind blowing, and uh, it's pushed me past minarchist, but not so much all the way to anarchist yet. But I wanted to be able to talk to somebody that I knew would know a lot more about it than um, than be able to explain it a lot better than I could, and. Um, I was hoping maybe you could, you know, shed some light on kind of about more who he was and maybe we can go over, you know, some of his more important works, maybe how his outlook could apply today with what's going on today. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, he, uh, he himself, I think had, had kind of an evolution over the course of his, his life and his writings where he, um, he did kind of change his perspective on a few things, and he did something that I I always admire, which is most people 
if they're ever radical at all, it's like a brief fling when they're, you know, 18 to 25 or something like that, right? Um, and then most people, like the old saying, right, if, you, if you're, if you're, what is it, if you're young and you're, and you're conservative, you've got ice in your blood, uh, uh, if you're old and you're liberal, you've got rocks in your head, something like that, something right? Something like that. Um, and so I always appreciate people who do the opposite, right, who um, wherever they start off get more radical as they get older, and and Spooner definitely seems to fit that bill. I mean, he was always some sort of an anti-authoritarian, some sort of, you know, proto-libertarian for sure from like pretty much as early as we have any information on him. Um, but I think that's what I identified with him. About, yeah, yeah. I've always questioned authority and, the, and I, I just turned 40. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm about to like pull that, you know, pull that anarchist lever. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some people just have, have that, have that attitude. Right. And it's just a matter of like, of, of if and when you work out all the kinks, right. And untangle it and, and sort of figure out like, all right, what contradictions do I have? Like if you're, if you've got that, that anti-authoritarian kind of just psychology, but you're not a radical you know, libertarian anarchist or whatever, then there's probably some contradictions somewhere. And so it's a, it's a question of like, do I want to pick at those knots and, and work out those kinks or not? And, you know, people have an amazing capacity, most people for, for just, you know, cognitive dissonance and, and living with contradictions and, and, you know, not seemingly not being bothered by them, although I think they might be bothered on some level. But mm-hmm. but a guy like Spooner, what I like about him is is he kind of works out the the contradictions over the course of his time. Um in, in his different writings you can see him evolve. So um in terms of his his biography, he was born um early 1800s i want to say 1808 but i could be off a year or two that's what i've heard that a couple times yeah in in like rural small town massachusetts and um lives into the the late 1880s he he lives 80 plus years something like that Uh, and obviously a, a giant chunk of of american history i mean he's basically born if i'm right on the date Thomas Jefferson is wrapping up his presidency and he's around uh, and I guess dies maybe when, who would it be then Grover Cleveland or. Yes. Cause that wasn't that his last recorded work, the the letter to Grover Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. He, he wrote to Grover Cleveland basically saying something like you're an illegitimate president or whatever <laughs> like that. Cause he's rejecting the whole idea of the presidency, yeah. which I can he's appreciate. Like, you're not, he's like, you're no worse, no better than anyone else. You're just all terrible. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, on the one hand, I like Grover Cleveland in my mind is one of the least terrible presidents, right? Which yeah. I mean, that's grading him on a curve, right? It's like saying, you know, Larry Kahn was, was better than Genghis and Kublai and, you know, um, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like he was saying, you're not a terrible person. You're just the president. So I don't like you. Yeah. 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 Well, he's just rejecting the whole idea. Yeah. In, in sort of the like same the office, way. Like the off, the office itself is illegitimate. Right. Right. He's doing, 
he's doing the same thing that um, Thomas Paine did with the King of England back in, in things like common sense, actually. Right. Um, which I, I've always wondered, and I don't know, um, and I, I don't claim to be the, the world's foremost expert on Spooner, but I've always wondered if into how, how much he was influenced perhaps by Thomas Paine. Uh, because if you look at a lot of just his overall attitudes about things, there's a lot of Thomas Paine, I think. And Spooner, he was basically self-taught. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, he might have gone to like a little bit of rudimentary, you know, what today we would consider like elementary school education, but he was mostly self-taught and eventually become became pretty, you know, literate and became a lawyer. Um, yeah, didn't he have which, a relative? What's that? Did he have a relative that was a lawyer? Uh, something like that. Yeah. And back then, back then there were still a lot of places where um, I think pretty much everywhere in the U S you could become a lawyer, like a, a real legit lawyer without ever going to law school. If you instead apprenticed it, which to me is an interesting idea. It's probably a better way to learn how to be a lawyer than to just sit in law school. I would imagine. I think they still do that in California. Really? I believe huh. so. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so so he did that. Of all places. Yeah, yeah, right. That's the last place I would have expected. <laughs> but um, he did that, and there was a there was a law in Massachusetts that said in order to to go that route, you had to be an apprentice for for a long period of time. I forget how many years it was, but Spooner got it in his head that this was basically just unfair, and he seems to have figured out that this was basically rent seeking, right? That this was the existing pool of lawyers put these sorts of rules, right? That you either have to be apprenticed for a very long time or you have to go to law school, which is expensive and a a regular guy from a humble background like Spooner couldn't afford to do it. And so obviously that's more than anything, it's about creating artificial scarcity of lawyers, right? By making it harder to become a lawyer. And so Spooner kind of figured this out for what it was. And he challenged it, and I think he actually uh, successfully got that law thrown out in Massachusetts for the time being. I forget the details if it was – I think he actually did it in court. So here's this self-taught lawyer who hasn't done the requisite number of years as an apprentice, and he's able to basically convince a court (laughs) to throw out uh, this this rule that makes it harder for, for people to become lawyers. So it's very interesting. When, when you read his writings, that's obviously where he's coming from. His writings are almost always very lawyerly. Mm-hmm. And, and some of them, to be honest with you, are not the most fun things to read. They're, part of it's the time period, right? He comes from, from a pre-Civil War mm-hmm. American writing style, which is often, by our standards today, it's, it's very wordy. The sentences are often very long. It's, it's hard just, to read. Yeah. Well, I, I tried reading it out loud. Yeah. And uh, I did like a little short bonus episode where I read the first, his first essay for no treason. Mm. And it didn't help that I had a chest cold. Yeah. And uh, trying to read it, I would have to, you know, read one or two sentences, stop, take a breath. And then, <laughs> yeah. But it's still, I don't know, to me, it's, you're right. It's, it's kind of hard to follow just because we don't, no one writes that way anymore. Yeah but there is a certain fire to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the way I see it is like uh, much of his writing, it's like a legal brief. He's, he's mm-hmm. making a lawyerly case yeah. systematically against something or whatever, right? And 
a lot of times he's he's making great logical points but you have to really kind of like focus and you know maybe reread some stuff multiple times to really follow the argument um, but it, it's quite brilliant. But then every now and then he'll have a passage where, where he kind of breaks from that, where he he's not writing like a antebellum attorney, right? <laughs> and and he suddenly is gets gets a little bit emotional or whatever in a few places. And like when he does that, it's it's oftentimes the most like beloved quotes that that libertarians and anarchists post of Spooner today, right? Where he's yeah. like just really. Call things what it is. He gets a little blue collar with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and when he does that, that's that's when he actually reminds me the most of Thomas Paine, mm -hmm. I think. And so again, you know, this this self taught guy who's radical from a very early age. Um, my guess is he probably read a bunch of Thomas Paine when he was, you know, prowling the library and whatever. Oh, well, I'm sure. Yeah, because I mean that would be still extremely popular and everyone knew who Thomas Paine was. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that, you know, these things like common sense and the crisis and the other stuff that Thomas Paine wrote in connection to the American Revolution, that was only 30 years ago when Spooner was born, right? Right. Um, that would have been only like, like 50, 60 years ago when Spooner was a young man coming up, becoming a lawyer. I mean, think about from our perspective today, like what's 60 years ago? 60 years ago is John F. Kennedy getting elected president, right? And while that mm -hmm. happened before our lifetimes, like that doesn't seem that long ago. And, and so to Spooner, like that's the gap from, from when he was a young man to when the American Revolution happened. It's just interesting to think about, right, that, you know, it was closer in time, the American Revolution was closer in time to Spooner's young adulthood than World War II is to right now. That's nuts. Yeah, it's, just, it's just interesting. It's one of those things I, I often like stop and think about in regard to history is like the relative distance in time uh, between different things, right? Mm -hmm. So, but anyway, um, Spooner, aside from becoming an, an attorney, and and a kind of radical guy from very early age questioning things challenging things he was an abolitionist from an early age just you know became convinced that slavery was wrong and violated natural law yeah when it wasn't when it wasn't cool to be an abolitionist yeah yeah where even in massachusetts you were considered you know in the 1840s you were considered a, a radical troublemaker and all that right this is you know when when people like william lloyd garrison physically had to fear fear for their safety at times mm -hmm. for, for being outspoken abolitionists. You hear people say it today. I'm like, you're so brave. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, what, what courage does it take? Yeah. Right, back, to, uh, like back then you wouldn't be against it. Yeah, exactly. Most, most people would not, right. Just like yeah. it's easy to condemn the Nazis right now, but like most people in Germany at the time, at least on some level, you know, supported them, at least tacitly, right? At least passively. Right. Um, but anyway, in, in the 1840s, he writes, um, let's see if I have the title handy, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. So you can see that he's, he's a radical abolitionist, but he's seemingly not an anarchist or anything like that quite yet and so he's still making an argument and you could see this is in part his, his lawyerly background he's making an argument that slavery is invalidated by the text of the constitution itself now this is this is kind of a tricky argument to make because and and by the way 
other many other radical abolitionists like William Lloyd Garrison, they actually they actually were very uh, uh, negative towards the Constitution. William Lloyd Garrison famously was just very hard on the Constitution and called it a compact with slaveholders. And the reason is because, of course, in the Constitution, there are the different passages that kind of, in a euphemistic way, you know, endorse slavery. They never quite say slavery or slaves, but they talk about, you know, persons held to servitude and all these sorts of things. Um, and so someone like Garrison would say, well, the Constitution sucks because the Constitution uh, is, is supportive of slavery. And the, the argument that Spooner makes in the unconstitutionality of slavery is he says, well, yeah, the guys who wrote the Constitution probably didn't intend it to um, invalidate slavery, for sure, because you know many of them did own slaves and didn't seem to really be abolitionists in general. But Spooner says when you kind of take the sum total of the Constitution together, uh, particularly the individual rights that are recognized in it and that sort of thing, it doesn't matter necessarily what the founders meant it to say about slavery, that the sum total of the natural rights and things that are mentioned in the Constitution is that slavery cannot be. So he's, he's making an argument that like the plain meaning of the text is actually what should take the, the bigger precedence rather than what the guys who wrote that text meant, which is, which is an interesting argument. I mean, he actually convinced some people of that. I think he convinced um, Frederick Douglass, for example, to endorse that argument that the Constitution, that slavery should be seen as unconstitutional even before, you know, decades before the 13th Amendment came in. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like with libertarianism, you go at the right from the right and the left from the left. It seems like he was arguing like a lawyer and going at the Federalist from the Federalist side. Does that make I mean, I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That he's, he's making the argument in their language, right? In the same way that yeah like you were saying right attack the the left from the left and the right from the right like scott horton always says mm -hmm. that yeah when you're speaking to someone that you know is like a right-wing constitutionalist conservative then you're more likely to to get somewhere by for example criticizing trump on those grounds right than by immediately right. launching into individualist anarchist mode and saying right. it's all it's Ill like illegitimate it's like in that situation you use uh pat buchanan <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah, you kind of, you know, meet people where they are. And I don't know, I don't know if there's any written records that give a window into what what Spooner really thought. Like, are those arguments in the unconstitutional of sla unconstitutionality of slavery, are, are those arguments really what he thought deep down? Or like you're kind of saying, was it a tactical move where he's like, well, Maybe William Lloyd Garrison is actually right in an absolute sense, mm -hmm. but given the fact that most Americans have this reverence for the Constitution, mm -hmm. might it not be beneficial to make an argument from that side of things, right? Mm -hmm. taking, taking kind of meeting them where they're at and saying, all right, you guys love the Constitution. Well, what if I told you the Constitution says, or at least uh, some total of its meaning is that slavery is no good, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. Or, or is that where he was at? Was he still at some sort of like minarchist, constitutionalist, you know, well, he idea? Well, he was at least until the Civil War or until after the Civil War. It, yeah, well, the, the war seems to have radicalized him for sure. Yeah, which it I tends think, to do. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it radicalized him more so against the U.S. government than he was, which he already had had plenty of, of complaints against it before then. Mm-hmm. Especially all the stuff, but, you know, the, um, that Lincoln did during and after the Civil War. Yeah, yeah, all the authoritarian stuff. And I think the one that probably bothered Spooner the most was military conscription. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think yeah. that bothered him a lot. And also just in general, the invading of the Southern states, which it's interesting. He, um, and we can, we could circle back to the, uh, the American letter mail company in, in a oh, little sure. bit if, if, if you want to, because it it's just a, it's just a fun story, but. Um, oh, it is. Yeah, sure. But the, yeah, though, it's interesting because Spooner was a super hardcore abolitionist and he thought that slaves had an absolute moral natural right to use violence if they deemed it to be necessary to free themselves, right? So mm-hmm. he supported the idea of the slaves themselves having violent uprisings if they thought it was, you know, the way to go for themselves to, to free themselves. And so he was super radical on that even before the, before the war. He actually, I'm a little fuzzy on the exact details, but he had some amount of contact and, and involvement with John Brown, mm-hmm. uh, just to give a sense of like how serious he was about this, that slaves have an absolute right to do whatever is necessary, including killing their masters to, to gain their natural rights back. And so, you know, he's, he's okay with the idea of the slaves themselves rising up and killing their masters. But when he sees the Union army invade the South, his interpretation of it is, and this is validated by what Lincoln said himself for the first half of the war anyway, that, that they're not really fighting first and foremost to free the slaves that they're fighting first and foremost from their perspective to prevent the South from getting its independence. Mm -hmm. And so Spooner's view is like, that's not, that's not a legitimate reason to be doing that. And, and I think he, maybe he would have been uncomfortable even if, even if that was their avowed purpose from day one, the union army, Mm -hmm. but in the, in the U S government, but I still think he might have been a little bit conflicted because, of course, there's a difference between appointing yourself the champion of someone else's freedom and going in and fighting and killing in their name, right? But but who actually deputized them, right? Uh, there's a difference between that versus DIY, right? There's a difference between the Union Army invading to free the slaves, even if that was their their number one purpose from day one, versus the slaves themselves doing it themselves, I think. That's kind of like today, when people white knight on behalf of other people. Yeah. And I'm like, how self-absorbed are you to be offended on their behalf? Like, like they couldn't do it themselves. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. We've all, we've all probably seen and heard plenty of examples of uh, wealthy white liberals being offended on behalf of races of people of whom they are not a part. Right. And, and, and we see it on the largest scale, I think when it comes to, to the foreign policy realm to this day with Team America saying, well, we're going to go free the Iraqis. Oh, we're going to go free. Now, now we're going to go free the Venezuelans or the Iranians or whoever it is, right? And it's like um, Murray Rothbard actually said once in a, in, a, in a lecture or something somewhere, he's, his little saying for this was, because um, he said, he was saying, 
Well, the trouble some people have with the idea of universal natural rights for human beings is they worry that sort of, this is how we put it back then, because this is like from decades ago, but they worry that, that somebody like, say, the, the neocons or the liberal interventionists will use the, the rhetoric of natural rights to then justify invading every country in the world where you could plausibly say that natural rights are, you know, under someone's boot. And, and so Rothbard's way to square this circle was he said, rights may be universal, but their enforcement must be local. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's ultimately it's up to the it's up to a group themselves to figure out how to how to get their rights, you know, respected and secured. And right. that it's it's dangerous to have people appointing themselves the champions of other people's rights. Right. Because then they end up becoming the new master. Yeah. Yeah. Very often it's just used as an excuse for, for doing all kinds of horrific things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the first essay of No Treason, he's, it seems like he's calling the North out. Um, yeah. You know, basically calling out the lie that it was about slavery. Yeah. Yeah. Called out, it, called out a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a, there's, there's a few passages in there where he, he does actually get, you know, more poetic than he usually is. Um, so here's one. I, I pulled out some of my notes from many, many years ago when I did a um, Dangerous History podcast episode on this, on, on Spooner. Was that 26? Uh, probably something like that. Yeah, it was okay. something I recorded way back in 2014, maybe? Yeah. Might have been in the very first year I was doing the podcast, I think. So uh, these are these are notes I probably haven't looked at in five or six years. But um, so one of the, the the passages, and maybe this is is one that you you shared in one of your previous episodes. But he says, "A government that can at pleasure accuse, shoot, and hang men as traitors for the one general offense of refusing to surrender themselves and their property unreservedly to its arbitrary will." can practice any and all special and particular oppressions it pleases. The result, and a natural one, has been that we have had governments, state and national, devoted to nearly every grade and species of crime that governments have ever practiced upon their victims. And these crimes have culminated in a war that has cost a million of lives. A war carried on upon one side for chattel slavery. So, you know, Spooner actually, I agree and, and I explained this in, in excruciating detail in some of my Civil War episodes. Spooner wasn't letting the South off the hook. Spooner was saying, oh, yeah, they are to a large extent fighting to protect chattel slavery, no doubt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that what the union's doing is okay, right? Two wrongs don't make a right. And so basically that's, that's my take on the Civil War is kind of like they, they, they both, uh, both sides, the, the union and Confederate governments were, were not fighting for a, a, a good cause. But anyway, so getting back to, to what Spooner says, he says um, – so a war on the one side for chattel slavery and on the other for political slavery, upon neither for liberty, justice, or truth. And these crimes have been committed in this war waged by men and the descendants of men who less than a hundred years ago said that all men were equal and could owe neither service to individuals nor allegiance to governments, except with their own consent, end quote. So 
you know, it's, it's a little bit, um, I guess, extra long run on sentences cobbled together with it, with a few semicolons. But <laughs> other than that, it's, it's, you know, reads like a legal document. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's, it's some of his most poetic, I think is, is mm-hmm. when he kind of really rants, rants against things and kind of calls things what they are. It gets you fired up. Yeah. 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 And, and of course, by this point, you know, much of no treason, as you know, is, is just him systematically taking apart the whole idea that we have in general of the idea of a social contract. And in particular, in the American case, it's often said or implied that the social contract for us is the U.S. Constitution, right? Mm -hmm. And so he just like piece by piece takes apart any argument that that has any validity. I mean, right down to the fact that like it has this it's this magical special kind of contract that has all these things about it that are totally different and in some cases the opposite of every other thing we recognize as a contract right um you know the idea that it was essentially you never really consented to it in any meaningful sense of the word consent right, right. that it was written by people a long time ago even back then most of the nation had nothing to do with either writing or ratifying it the vast mm-hmm. majority of people had nothing to do with any of that at all and then even if the whole nation had been involved in, in making the constitution way back in the 1780s, how on earth is it valid for that to then be binding upon people generations later? Right. Right. It's like a bunch of um, colonial elites got rid of the British elites. Right. And then took over that mantle. Yeah. And, and when and how exactly did, did any of us living today ever sign such a contract? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, That, you know, we, we don't allow, and as a lawyer, of course, he's, he's well-versed in this, that how contracts operate normally in every other realm of society is you can't sign someone else's name onto a contract for them, you know. That, no, that's called fraud. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I can't, you know, I can't contract your services to somebody else without you actually, you know, clearly consenting to do so. And, you know, I can't incur debt in your name, for example, without you co-signing the loan. And so why on earth, and and this is what Spooner often does that, that I like to do, which is all you do to see the state for what it is, is you just apply the same standards and definitions and, and rules and morals that everyone applies to everybody else. To them and you go oh this is obviously different right like I, I can't i can't at gunpoint force you to contribute to a charity <laughs> um we would all immediately say well even if it is for a really good charitable cause you still don't get to just extort money from somebody under threat to fund your charity that's that's still wrong and so you know you just apply that to, to taxation and and compulsory welfare states and, you know, if I have a, a property dispute with my neighbor and I just, you know, start lobbing bombs at his house to try and settle it in my favor, we immediately go, wow, that's, that's evil and, and criminal and that's bad. Even if you had a legit property claim over his, like that's not, that's not the way you, you go about settling that. But, you know, if it's, if it's the leader of one state doing that against another state, we call it foreign policy, Right. Right. I think that's the main thing that he had a problem with in the Constitution. And I was I was listening to an old Larkin Rose interview. And um 
and he was saying the main problem is is that right right you know in the constitution it gave the government special powers that the people didn't have right but they put for the people by the people or of the people but it but then you know it'll say well the government has the right to collect taxes right well the, immediately it's setting itself apart from the people yeah i can't go come and collect taxes on you and if you right and if you refuse to pay and i kill you it's murder right but try not paying your taxes to the government yeah 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 the whole idea because the idea of the constitution and even to some degree of of things that that preceded it intellectually like john locke's writings and stuff like that the idea of this you know theoretically minarchist state based on consent of the government is that the only powers the government has are those delegated to it by the people right the those the rights to exercise certain powers the government gets them delegated to them by the people but then the problem is how can you delegate something that you don't have to begin with exactly and let's say that was possible and we could have the power to do it ourselves then why outsource it we just take care of ourselves and then we don't need the government right yeah i mean yeah. it's a very well, simplistic way to look at it but yeah know. john john locke makes the argument based on practicality that like you know nobody can 100 percent effectively defend themselves against threats all the time mm -hmm. you know everyone has to sleep everyone you know whatever um and and plus then there there's the issue of like you know maybe i can defend myself pretty effectively but then someone who wants to take my stuff or kill me or whatever just gets together a whole gang of guys and they come do it and so you need government to kind of like in a practical sense you need government to be able to augment the right of people to defend their own rights right but yeah then the problem is though that from its inception it's it's based on compulsion mm -hmm. and so how how can that be um how can that be just simply an extension of your ability to protect your natural rights if if from its inception it has the ability to make you pay for it and and abide by its rules and um and everybody else too for that matter right because then it's then it's not falling under the same rules that you have uh, yeah yeah separate set of rules yeah and and of course in a practical sense too like there's always going to be um some amount of people who who didn't even if you're living in the time I, I guess like the initial generation of a representative government with a constitution and all that, where like that stuff actually was put together in your lifetime. And let's say even unlike our constitution, it actually was passed by a popular plebiscite mm -hmm. of, of all the adult, you know, people or whatever in the nation, you still have the problem of in a practical sense, it's never going to be unanimous. And so mm -hmm a certain percentage of people probably voted against that constitution if you had the vote to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so how can they then be completely have their, their natural rights voided? Um, and yet that still be a government that somehow is legitimate because it respects natural rights and is based on the consent of the governed. Right. And I'm sure the people that uh, complained about it back then, they were probably told to move to the frontier. Sure. <laughs> and in <laughs> some cases they did. <laughs> yeah. <of> Somalia. <laughs> And in some cases they did because it, you know, it wasn't total freedom, but oftentimes um, 
it, it would definitely be less. I mean, it has its own problems, <laughs> right? Get eaten by grizzly bear. Yeah. Uh, whacked by, by hostile Indians or whatever. <laughs> you know, I don't know. There's less, less nanny state looking over your shoulder. So there is that. Right. Was it uh, a dangerous freedom versus uh Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so yeah, by, by the 1870s, he's, he's completely rejecting the constitution. He's, I would say some sort of individualist anarchist by then. Um, but I, I do want to just briefly mention for anyone who's not familiar with, with more of Stu, uh, Spooner's backstory that in the 1840s, he successfully um, competed with the United States Postal Service. It was the American letter mail company that he started in the 1840s. And this was a, a time when um, the U.S. Postal Service, because of its monopoly, as always happens with a the monopoly, their rates were getting really onerous. And so Spooner saw an entrepreneurial um, opportunity hey, I can organize a private mail delivery service and run it efficiently and all this sort of thing. And um, I can charge much less and do a better job. And it actually was successful for a number of years in the 1840s. It was, it was doing well and it was um, turning a profit and delivering mail. I think he started in Massachusetts, but then also was operating in a number of Northeastern states. Mm-hmm. And it was um, more efficient. Yeah, yeah, it was it was just more efficient. Shockingly, right? Someone who's actually competing wasn't he? Um, like, he was beating the U.S. Postal Service by almost a week or something like that. Oh yeah, it was it was crazy. It was faster and cheaper, and um, it yeah, actually it forced the Postal Service to actually drop some of their rates to try and compete with them. But then, of course, they just eventually got the the federal government to just close Spooner's company down. Just yeah, you're tied done. Him up, tied them up yep. in litigation and made them go broke. Yep. Yep. And what he, they do now. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. He and I mean, look at look at what he was doing. Like, he wasn't doing anything that was hurting anybody other than, you know, making the postal service look bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which which they deserved it. But all he was doing was providing better service to people for lower price, which was completely legal. Which, yeah, but according to the according to the, the government's rules and interpretation of the Constitution. Postal Service has a monopoly on letter mail, right? The UPS and FedEx, they can deliver packages, but first-class letter mail is a Postal Service monopoly. <laughs> and at the time, wasn't the stamp, wasn't like 14 cents, which was a couple dollars in today's... Yeah, it was, whatever the exact amount was, yeah, it was, it was expensive relative to inflation and, and cost of living at the time. It was... It was like it was actually cheaper to send a package. Yeah. Yeah. And um, not trying to steal your thunder, but wasn't he, wasn't he nicknamed the father of the three cent stamp? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Because, like because he did, he did force the posties to have to drop the the price of a stamp pretty significantly. So, you know, those little sorts of stories are kind of cool, right? That, yeah. you know, he's, he's kind of fighting this, David and Goliath kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, this, you know, metaphorical guerrilla war. Um, you know, I, and I always like the idea of entrepreneurs who are doing that sort of thing in some way. Um, and sometimes they're able to to be successful and sometimes they're they get shut down by by the man. Mm-hmm. But you know, it makes me think of who who was it? Was it 
was it one of the Vanderbilts? It's in, it's in the book, um, Myth of the Robber, Robber Barons, where in New York, there was a state monopoly given to the first guy to have like good working steamboats. I think it was Robert Fulton. And so he, he got a monopoly on steamboat service on the Hudson River. The state of New York just was like, here, you, you're the only guy that can do this. And of course, what happened? Didn't take too many years until the service was terrible and the prices were exorbitant. And then somebody came along, I think it was Cornelius Vanderbilt or somebody, um, and just said, well, you know what? I'm going to ignore the law and I'm going to offer steamboat service and I'm going to have better service and I'm going to charge a fraction of what this guy is charging because I don't have a monopoly to support. And, um, and so... You know, next thing you know, he's out competing them horribly. And I think in that case, there was a happy ending where, where they got the law changed or thrown out or whatever, so that there was no longer this monopoly on steamboats in the river. So every now and then, the, the subversive entrepreneur does get a win, you know, by getting some, some stupid law changed or some monopoly thrown out. Unfortunately, yeah. not, not for Spooner, though. No, no. And I think it's, it's similar to like uh, Bastiat. He didn't have the success or the recognition at the time, but that right. came far, far later, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and there's an interesting um, thing he wrote that I've never actually sat down and read the whole thing. I read uh, some parts of it when I was preparing for that podcast episode a long time ago, but I just recently got it on Kindle, I think for 99 cents or whatever. Nice. Um, Let's see. Poverty, it's illegal causes and legal cure. Mm-hmm. It's this little kind of book that he wrote. Um, I think also post-Civil War, I think also maybe in the 1870s. And this one's interesting because he's, he's getting more into some of his economic ideas, which are interesting. He really um, had an issue with the, uh, the, the nexus and collusion of of the big bankers and the, the government authorities, you know, he, he really had a lot of bad things to say about the big bankers of his day mm-hmm. because he saw them for what they were. He saw that there's this, there's this collusion, this unholy alliance um, between them and the state to kind of bolster their, um, you know, their wealth, which he, he saw as, as unjust and, and exorbitant and whatever. And so, He's making an argument, and some of it, some of it's kind of arcane. It's not the easiest thing to read in the world, um, but there's there's parts of it that are that are pretty good. But he's making this argument that basically, one of the ways that the state prevents more people from being self-employed is by controlling interest and making it harder for poorer people to borrow in order to acquire their own capital and means of production or whatever to to work towards becoming self-employed and so it's a kind of market anarchist argument that if there was a truly freed market there would naturally be a more equitable distribution of wealth not that it would be a hundred percent everyone has the same amount of stuff of course but and there would be natural differences between individuals that arise from difference in, in you know qualities but that the, the exorbitant differences between rich and poor that we see in, you know, what I would call like state capitalism or crony capitalism, that those are artificial and that there would be less of, of those extremes of, of rich and poor if there was a, a truly free market situation um, operating. 
and that, that a much greater percentage of people would be self-employed and that that would be a good thing. And that's another thing I like about Spooner is he actually, um, and this kind of gets into the nitpicky arcane thing of like differentiating market anarchists from anarcho-capitalists, but um, Spooner really seems to have thought that that it was a good thing for a variety of reasons if most people were self-employed rather than just being, you know, wage workers for somebody else. That this is good for freedom. That freedom, it's not just about, you know, state power and trying to roll that back. It's also, are more people economically self-sufficient? Yeah, individual liberty type, type idea, you know. Yeah, because how free are you if you're completely dependent upon somebody else for your means of subsistence and, and making a basic living? Mm-hmm. That's true. So was he more of a market anarchist and not – because I had someone ask me about his um, involvement with First International. Yeah, and to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not super you know, well-versed on, on the details of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a complicated thing back then because like the, the ideas that we, we have today, the sort of clear categories, things like libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, and mm-hmm. all these sorts of things, um, it, was, it was a lot blurrier back then. Yeah. And, and the way people use certain terms was different than the way that they're used now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there are some of these like left-wing anarchists that, are often classified as, as like collectivist anarchists like Proudhon or somebody like that. But if you actually go back and, and read Proudhon, which I've not done extensively, but I've done some here and there, um, you go back and read somebody like Proudhon, and there's definitely times where even though he doesn't use the same words, he sounds like a free market guy, even mm-hmm. though then there's other, other times where he might sound almost more like an anarcho-communist. So, Yeah, because yeah. I think that's what the First International – was kind of like libertarian socialism but yeah yeah but but there was a lot of there's a lot of diversity there too yeah there was because i was trying to explain it the person that asked me because he's like well marx was in that i'm like well from what i looked at it when it's not like today where you hop on the internet and you see somebody say something and it's immediate you know when when someone like marx would join he might he might not know that that's even a thing you know, until like a year later, you know, just depends on how fast news traveled. And back then it was really slow, but it seems like when it started going that way, all those guys left, Mm. you know, um, and then they started like the second international order or whatever. I don't know, but yeah, I see what you mean. It's, um, it's just like, um, when people try to dissect the, the constitution now especially like second amendment and they're like they'll say arms and they're trying to use today's definition of you know well regulated right you can't can't do that you have to use the the definition of that time and then it makes more sense right which which spooner in in the unconstitutionality of slavery rejects that right spooner says you just interpret the plain meaning of what the text says true um which is interesting obviously he didn't he didn't stick to that no but i think understanding you know, like what the definition of well regulated is then versus what it is today cuz today it means it's heavily 
you know, restricted back then amount in good working order. Yeah, right. Back then it meant that they were like, you know, reasonably well drilled and, yeah, you know, prepared and all that. Right. And then, you know, arms, people don't know what the word arms means today, but then it meant any type of military weapon, you know. Right. So I guess when people are trying to explain, you know, well, they were socialist, like you were saying, if you go back and read them, it's not, it's not the same definition of socialism today as it was then, or if they were even in any sort of way socialist back then either. Yeah. And, and a lot of these ideas and terms, I mean, some of them are obviously things that come along later, but you know, the words that were around back then, like anarchist and socialist and whatever, a lot of these words were not, they were still, um, still kind of taking form exactly what they meant. Right. And you didn't have these clear cut camps the way you do now, where it's like, Oh, this is an anarcho communist. And this is an anarcho syndicalist. And this is an anarcho capitalist. Like all these sorts of things were much more blurry and, and still being kind of put together. Right. I guess. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. The anarcho pronouns weren't as well defined then. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah. But, um, oh, if, if I could just, um, and I've got to, I've got to go before too long, but sure, sure. Um, if I could just share, did, did you in any of your previous episodes read the passage where, um, Spooner compares the government to a high, the politician to a highwayman? I have not, but go for it. Okay. And to be honest with you, I've I've got this in my notes. I think it's somewhere in No Treason, but it is. Yeah. Okay. I think it's yeah. The, I think it's in the sixth one. Okay. Yeah. It's 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 been a long time since I sat down and read it, but I just mm -hmm. I love this quote so much. I so, do too. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Well, he's comparing the government to a highwayman, which was a term back then for you know a guy who basically like robs you on the road while you're, yeah, while you're traveling. The ambush. Yeah. Yeah. And he says the bandit, and he says. Right. Right. Um, this is Spooner. The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, your money, or your, your money or your life. The government does not waylay a man in a lonely place, spring upon him from the roadside, and holding a pistol to his head, proceed to rifle his pockets. But the robbery is nonetheless a robbery on that account, and it is far more dastardly and shameful. The highwayman does not pretend that he has any rightful claim to your money or that he intends to use it for your own benefit. He does not pretend to be anything but a robber. He is too sensible a man to make professions such as these. Furthermore, having taken your money, he leaves you. He does not persist in following you on the road against your will, assuming to be your rightful sovereign on account of the protection he affords you. He does not keep, quote-unquote, protecting you, by commanding you to bow down and serve him, by requiring you to do this and forbidding you to do that, by robbing you of more money as often as he finds it for his interest or pleasure to do so, and by branding you as a rebel, a traitor, and an enemy to your country, and shooting you down without mercy. If you dispute his authority or resist his demands, he, the highwayman, is too much of a gentleman to be guilty of such impostures and insults and villainies as these. In short, he does not, in addition to robbing you, attempt to make you either his dupe or his slave, end quote. So, yeah, the, the politician adds insult to injury, right? They not only rob you, but they, st they spend 
all their time telling you it's for your own good, they're not really robbing you, whatever. Um, the common private sector criminal actually has enough self-respect and respect for you <laughs> to not pretend he's doing anything other than what he's doing. Um, so, you know, like, like Dave Smith says about, about the state, the state um, is, is the mafia pretending to be a charitable institution. <laughs> yeah. Using your own money to oppress you. Yep, and saying it's all for your own good, right? There's always that, that paternalist um, justification. Yeah, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, right? That's right. <laughs> we're going we're to keep you from destroying your own life by putting you in a cage or killing you. Yeah, yeah, which, you know, is an argument that was frequently made in the antebellum South to justify slavery, right? This mm. is for the good of the slaves, you know, we're, we're taking better care of them than they could of themselves. We're, we're, we're being benevolent, um, you know, father figures to them. And yeah, they, some of them don't like it, but you know, that's just because they're, they're, they're not smart and educated enough to understand what, what it is we're doing for them. Hmm. Yeah. It takes a special kind of person to think that they, uh, can run a whole bunch of other people's lives. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me every decent person realizes how, how at the best case scenario, at the edge of their competence, they are running their own life. You know, right. <laughs> most, most people aren't even doing a halfway decent job on that most of the time. Right? So the, <laughs> the idea that, that there's some of us that can run everyone's lives, it's, it's just ludicrous. I know, I know. I think I'm finally to the point where I just want to be left alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, Let me keep I'm my money. Too. I'll help out people where I can. And, you know, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think that's pretty good. That's uh, we cover a lot and um, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, do you, would, do you want to go ahead and do your plugs so that um, everybody can find you? Uh, uh sure. Yeah. Uh, the Dangerous History Podcast, that's, that's my, my main thing uh, that I do online. Um, I've got a few other, other things in various stages of planning and preparation, but um, they're not up and running yet. But yeah, Dangerous History Podcast, I've been doing it for almost six years now. Um, Going to be putting out a 200th episode pretty soon. So anyway, go to DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And that'll take you to the to the homepage, and of course the podcast is available all the usual podcast uh, syndication venues, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. Um, and yeah, you can like me on Facebook, uh, follow me on Twitter, and anyone who digs my work, you can support me on on uh, Patreon or Subscribestar, and you also get bonus stuff uh, and cool stuff like that too. So yeah, Dangerous History Podcast. Very cool. And uh, do you still have your Amazon wish list? Yes. Um, do you want to tell people how they can, if they wanted to, to? Yeah. Well, um, I've got a, I've got a wish list. Um, it's linked to in the show notes. I think for every regular episode I've done, or 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 just about, um, and it'll just say something like CJ's Amazon wish list or something like that. But um, yeah, it's just a giant list. There's, I've got a few like like hardware, uh, podcasting and video hardware related items and things like that, but it's mostly books. And so it's just, you know, um, kind listeners, uh, when they feel like it will, will go on there and order me, um, some cool books and stuff. I just got a few, a uh, couple weeks ago, I just got a few from a listener that are interesting that have to do with, uh, 
with cults, which I'm always interested in. And um, we've got a few not long before that having to do with various of the many dark and uh, dirty corners of the history of the so-called intelligence community, mm. which I just love that euphemism, the intelligence community. Right? Like the, they're just this like friendly neighborhood group of people. You know, <laughs> they're a community. Hi ho, um, I'm your local spy. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah, they're, they're spying on people and and and, yeah. and slaughtering people and assassinating people and whatever. But you know, they're a community, so it's all good. Yeah, I'm a. I was an intelligence analyst in the army. Oh, nice. So, so you were in the community. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I was the redheaded stepchild. Um, I asked too many questions, but yeah, um, that'll ruin it. Yeah. Why is never good when you're working for government. Um, but no, yeah. I'll be interested to, to hear those episodes. Cause um, yeah, I have a special interest of, you know, history and especially, you know, intelligence type stuff. And I'm slowly getting into economics, even though, um, I'm better at hitting things with hammers than I am reading e economics, but it's interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, what, what's a, a pretty good one. Um, if you want something that's, that's very straightforward and, and readable, but also does a good job of explaining some pretty complicated stuff, uh, get lessons for the young economist by Bob Murphy. Oh yeah. I love Bob Murphy. Yeah, that, that book, Lessons for the Young Economist, he wrote it for like a, like a young adult, like a, almost like a, you know, like a homeschooling textbook or whatever. But, you know, it's just fine for, for the educated layman adult, too. It's not like he's talking down to you or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but, it's, but because it's written for, for like a young adult audience, it's like very smooth to read. And um, so, yeah, I actually, I'm, I'm a big fan of that book, um, even just for myself. That'll work. I feel it's, like a young adult, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? You know, till I get out I mean, of bed in the morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah, actually one of the things that I'm going to be eventually doing more coverage on is the history of ONI, the office of Naval intelligence. Cause I think, nice. I think they're one of the, uh, one of the underappreciated corners of the intelligence community. Oh yeah. Right there the, with, um, the, uh, clowns in action. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yeah. And um, ONI is actually the oldest uh, portion of the intelligence community. They go it way is. back. It is. Um, what was that episode? Was it on AMC uh, during, was it the Re Revolutionary War? Spies? Oh. Um, the guy was like a double agent? Yeah, I know the show you're talking about. I never really watched it, but I remember hearing about it yeah yeah even going back that far into you know spying and intelligence and tactics and things like that i think are pretty interesting sure yeah it was all ad hoc though until they set up oni and then then they went pro uh, yeah they, they set up oni and then they set up um uh, army intelligence which i forget what they originally called it um maybe a couple decades after that and then that was the center, the naval intelligence and army intelligence were the centerpiece of like formal organized intelligence then mm -hmm. until um, World War II. And everything else was kind of ad hoc. Right. And then was it the OSS that grew out of World War I or was that strictly during World War II? But yeah, OSS was created in World War II. Okay. 
So it was created um, in 1942, uh, a few months after Pearl Harbor. Okay. And then that, that went away briefly, and then it came back bigger and permanent as, as CIA. So Correct. Yeah, you definitely, you covered some, a lot of that in your, um, was it the uh, DHP villains? Oh, yeah, yeah. The um, William Stevenson, that, mm-hmm. that guy. Yeah, the Anglo-Canadian spy who was... Mm-hmm involved with with setting up oss and was part of the real life inspiration um for some aspects of the james bond stories actually because ian fleming worked for him that's right that's right that's right it's 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 a small world man (laughs) and all those people are all interwoven somehow yep so but yeah all that all that stuff is a is a story for another time i guess Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, again, thank you for taking the time to uh, to come on the show, and I uh, really appreciate it. And um, I hope you guys are doing well. Yeah, we're doing all right so far. Um, I hope you're hanging in there okay as well. And um, yeah. yeah, great talking to you. You too. My pleasure. Yes, sir. Had a good time. All right. Take care. Take care.